snuggle up by the fire and listen to a ghost story. Don't pay any heed to the howling wind outside or to the creaks in the floorboards. Don't let the footsteps in the attic or the shadows cast by a flickering candle trouble you. Strange shapes are crawling out of the dark. Something ominous is knocking at your door. Chains are rattling in the cellar. Quiet. The ghosts of Christmas are gathering. It is time for the Midnight Carols. Chapter 3 The Forgotten Suitcase Part 1 Dark storm clouds were gathering in the evening sky when I boarded the train. I was 18 at the time, a first-year undergrad and on my way to my parents' country house for Christmas. I was in no particular hurry to go back home, but I was grateful to leave the cold of night behind. Christmas with my parents had always been a tedious affair. While others might consider it an occasion neither for religious devotion nor for presents and wonders, I was raised to see beyond superstition and make-believe. Santa Claus wouldn't come round to our house, and there was no nativity scene beneath our Christmas tree. My father, a military officer of some stature in the Royal Navy, would never have permitted such fancy. As for my mother, the youngest daughter of a baronet, she enjoyed her role as a socialite and philanthropist too much to spend her time doing anything else. For as long as I could remember, Christmas only meant performing my duties as a picture-perfect son in front of a wide circle of family members and acquaintances. Among other tasks, I was expected to perform a violin recital, to care for the younger children, and to show off my perfect manners in such a way as to prevent any embarrassment for my parents. A steward in immaculate white livery gave me a professional smile and a little bow as I handed him my ticket. Upon examining it, he frowned slightly. Before I realised what was happening, the train manager had arrived and was explaining to me in a smooth and hushed tone that due to an earlier cancellation, a rugby team would be travelling in the open carriage where I had reserved my seat. Bad weather was blamed, and a seat in a coupé as well as complimentary refreshments were offered in compensation. I could still claim my reserved seat, but it would cause some difficulties with the rugby team. The manager seemed relieved that I didn't care one way or the other. And so the steward took my suitcase and led me down the carriage to the coupé. Seats were arranged around tables for two or four people, set with white tablecloth, silverware, candles and bright red Christmas crackers. Each side of the carriage was adorned with fir tree trimmings and glass baubles. 
the steward left my suitcase in the luggage storage next to the coupe as I sat in the empty compartment. I let myself sink into the large velvet chair and looked around. The gleam of the candlelight on the brass fixtures and on the dark rosewood and mahogany marker tree had a hypnotizing effect. I found myself increasingly sleepy, head bobbing up and down, listening to the howling wind outside. cold draft woke me up. I couldn't have slept for too long because we were only two stops from Oxford Station. The remnants of a disturbing dream lingered on the verge of my consciousness, weighing heavily on my eyelids. But, as is often the case with dreams, I remembered nothing of it. The coupe sliding door opened and a woman entered, accompanied by a young child. She was lean and tall, with an elegant neck and an expression of mild worry. With her long black skirt, her buttoned-up blouse and her felt bonnet, she seemed to have stepped out of the last century. The child, a young girl with blonde hair and bright blue eyes, wore a similarly outdated outfit. A governess and her pupil, I assumed. There were still many rich families following the old ways and shunning modernity. The woman glared at me, silently apologizing for having disturbed my sleep, but I dismissed her concerns. Despite her modest clothes, she was attractive enough. As for the girl, she seemed well-behaved. I was grateful for a bit of company and hoped it would distract me from my gloom. The child jumped to the window at the first signs of the imminent departure. After a series of tremors, the comforting rattle of the train resumed. I was thinking about the best way to strike up a conversation with the charming governess when the panel doors slid open once again. I expected the steward to materialize, perhaps with the promised refreshments. Instead, the back of a weather-beaten coat appeared in the doorframe. The man it belonged to was large and broad-shouldered, so large, in fact, that the rest of the wagon looked out of proportion, like a miniature train. Fragments of an argument reached me, partly covered by the noise of the train wheels turning on the rails. From what I could gather, the traveller refused to be separated from his suitcase. His voice lowered like a deep growl as he whispered something in the steward's ear. A moment passed as both men stood in silence. The steward's face had turned white, and his eyes had widened in shock. The train manager finally intervened, pushing the steward aside and putting the matter to rest by offering the traveller a clever threat masquerading as an apology. The large man shuffled his feet as he turned around and entered the coupé. There went my hopes of making overtures to the governors. The man hung his weather-beaten coat on the rack near the sliding door and sat next to me, opposite the young girl. Fortunately, the seats were wide enough to accommodate his unusual size. Without a word, he reclined in his seat and put his bowler hat over his face. 
I glanced at the governess and hazarded a smile, but her attention was focused on the man sitting next to me. Indeed, even with his face hidden, his presence permeated the room. The flickering candlelight shone a little dimmer, and even the Christmas ornaments seemed dull. The girl was shifting in her seat, uneasy and agitated. I didn't blame the child. I was beginning to feel uncomfortable myself. It was the same kind of feeling one would have when witnessing some gross impropriety. At last, the steward appeared with a tray of food and drinks. I realized that, despite the rancid taste in my mouth, I was quite hungry. The man stirred, straightened up and removed the hat from over his face, only to reveal, to my relief and, I am ashamed to admit it, my surprise, perfectly common features. He had a long, emaciated face with a thick moustache and small, curious eyes. I ate my snack in relative silence, only interrupted by the little girl's occasional laughter and joyful exclamations. All my attempts to start a conversation with either passenger failed miserably. The woman only answered by bowing her head and offering a demure smile. As for the man, he wouldn't even look at me, shutting down small talk with a combination of grunts and sighs. In fact, he wouldn't look anyone in the eyes. Instead, he positioned himself so as to examine each of us through sidelong, uncomfortable glances. Given the condition of his garments, I assumed he was a man of low condition, unaccustomed to traveling in luxury, which would explain his strange manners. The poor man must have been forced to take this train, the last one for the day, to reach his destination in time for Christmas. How much of his measly salary did he have to spend just to ride this train, I wonder. It didn't matter how long I mused over his woes, picturing a life of misery and poverty. I couldn't bring myself to feel any compassion towards the strange traveller. His way of eating in large, ravenous bites, and his constant glances towards the girl. Furtive, piercing, greedy glances. Everything about him repulsed me. I realize I must sound like a spoiled brat, complaining about the great unwashed, but I couldn't shake off the feeling that I was sharing my ride with someone unseemly, and although he had done nothing overt to confirm my suspicion, utterly dangerous. This thought made me queasy, and I promised myself to keep my eyes open. Although it was only early evening, it was pitch-dark night when we reached my stop. A confusing wave of guilt, relief and anxiety washed over me as I left the coupé. The governess looked at me with absolute terror, her face contorted in a silent cry for help. Whether the man lacked awareness or simply ignored me, I didn't know, but 
His whole being was focused on the little girl. His eyes gleamed behind the black fringe of his unkempt hair. With a wide, ravenous grin, he watched as the girl played with her toys, lost in her fancy and oblivious to the world around her. A last impulse led me to break the awkward silence in a vain attempt to prevent what I perceived as an imminent danger. Uh, Miss, I think there is some space in the sleeping car. Should I have a word with the steward to arrange something for the rest of your journey? Surely it would be more comfortable and uh, appropriate for you and the child. She looked at me quizzically, struggling to understand that I was offering to warn the steward of their current predicament. The man laughed softly and let out a throaty whisper before she could answer. Don't trouble yourself, mate. There's plenty of space now that you're leaving. I'll take good care of them. Don't you worry. I didn't have much time to ponder over the meaning of this last sentence. I reached into the luggage compartment next to the coupe, grabbed my suitcase and hurried down the aisle. The Christmas decorations and the atmosphere of cosy luxury had lost their luster and appeal. All I could see was the man's piercing gaze, his hungry eyes burning like embers beneath a fringe of oily black hair. I wish I could turn back and take the governess and her pupil with me, away from this man. His words echoed in my mind as I got off the train. I'll take good care of them. Don't you worry. A shiver ran down my spine, and for an instant, I wondered whether the cold wind or my feeling of guilt was to blame. The station, a group of wooden buildings crumbling over one another, was located over three miles from the nearest town. In its heyday, it was the railhead for many farmers and coal merchants, with a constant flow of merchandise, including hay, coal, corn, wool, livestock and butter, being dispatched all over the country. From these days, only a few sheds with mossy roofs remained. During the summer, the spinney that surrounded the station gave the place a pastoral charm, but the howling gale and dreary night made it look even more decrepit than usual. I watched as the train stirred, left the station and disappeared after the curve, trying to shake off the memory of the unpleasant man. I walked around the building and looked for the entrance of the waiting shelter. Everything was dark and silent. The station buildings seemed closed, abandoned even. Even though I expected my parents' driver to pick me up soon enough, I had no desire to wait for him outside. I circled around the buildings once again, trying to look through the windows. Passenger traffic was rare these days. 
I couldn't blame the station master for leaving early to spend Christmas Eve with his family. Still, it was unfortunate. I leaned against the wall and watched the nearby copse of trees with growing anxiety. The branches were looming over the railway, dark and crooked. I was about to retreat on the other side of the station when... What might you be wanting, laddie? What are you doing here all alone on the eve of Christmas? I've just arrived. I took the train from Oxford. He looked at me as if I were a simpleton, prompting me to carry on. I'm waiting for my parents' driver. He should be here any minute now. I'd rather wait for him inside, if you don't mind. You must be the station master, I presume. Aye. Would you mind opening the waiting shelter for me? Sure, laddie. Won't do you any good, though. No driver's going to pick you up tonight. The weather's been horrible and the roads are covered with ice. It's a death trap out there and no mistake. Unless you plan on spending the night in the waiting shelter and I don't suggest you do, laddie. It's not a good night to be stuck here, trust me. There's no point in opening it for you. But... No need to worry, laddie. You can come home with me. The missus is baking a gammon. Uh, that's very kind of you, but don't trouble yourself on my behalf. I shouldn't want to impose on you or your wife. Look, you don't want to spend Christmas even the cold and the dark. It will be no trouble at all. The missus will be delighted to have company. And we can leave a note in case anyone comes around. The more he insisted that I came with him, the more determined I was to wait. I wouldn't be treated like a child, even if it meant spending half the night in this ramshackle shelter. My parents will be expecting me. I'm quite sure their driver will arrive soon enough. Only after the station master had left did I begin to regret not accepting his offer. The shelter, a single-story wooden cabin adjacent to the maiden building, didn't deserve to be called a waiting lounge. In fact, I had seen more amenable bicycle sheds. It was cold and drafty inside, reeking with cigarette smoke, urine and stale air. The small room was lit with one bare light bulb hanging from a hole in the ceiling. I sat on the bench, hoping to discern the sound of a car through the wind. If it weren't for my pride, I would have probably been warm and cosy in the station master's house, eating gammon near a roaring fire. In a vain attempt to think about something else, I reminisced about my train ride. The comfy carriage, the lush velvet chairs, the lovely governess and her pupil. I was so enthralled in my fancy that I could almost smell the aromas of coffee. The memory of the sinister man broke the spell. The thought of him alone with the governess and the little girl made me sick. You're imagining things. You shouldn't judge anyone based on appearance and demeanor. He did nothing untoward in your presence and will behave just as properly in your absence. You just wish you could whisk the young lady away like the hero of an absurd romance novelette. What would your father think? The slight rebuke was enough to quiet my misgivings, but my mind was still fretting. I stood up and paced in the waiting room to warm up my limbs. The cold had numbed my hands and feet. My eyes strayed towards the door's cracked window from time to time. 
Beyond the door was the narrow platform and the railway. And after that, the empty darkness of the woods. The night didn't frighten me, but something about the pitch-black sky pressing on the window made me uneasy. I calmed myself and did my best to remain master of my emotions. A rational mind shouldn't succumb to fear in the absence of clear and present danger. It was only a matter of time before the driver would arrive. I would almost certainly miss the peace and quiet once I was surrounded by my parents' guests. A little after ten, snow began falling. Thick, wet snowflakes clinging to the window. It was too late to go look for the station master's house. I wasn't about to go out in this weather, and the chances of the driver picking me up during a snowstorm were slim. Fortunately, the wind had decreased. After the howling gale, the quiet should have been a relief, but I found the snowy silence unnerving. I picked up my suitcase. It was heavier than I remembered, and laid it on the bench to look for a sweater. I was about to open it when a disturbing sensation came over me. It was a most disagreeable feeling, a combination of surprise, guilt, and mild distress, as if someone watching over my shoulder had caught me doing something reprehensible. I turned sharply, facing the door. The room was empty, of course. Nerves. Nothing but nerves, I suppose. A good meal and some company will cure that. Not to mention a good night's sleep. Something caught my attention out of the corner of my eye. A darker shape creeping in front of the window. At the same time, I heard a faint sound. Something between the shuffling of feet and the scratching of claws at the door. I stood still, holding my breath and listening. It was all nonsense, obviously. I was overwrought and exhausted. Hearing things was a perfectly normal consequence of the constant hubbub I had endured for the last few hours. For several minutes I remained motionless and stared into the shapeless dark behind the window with unwavering resolve. That's all rubbish. Who could possibly be outside tonight? There's nobody on the other side of this door and I should get some rest instead of giving in to my overactive imagination. Hello? Is someone there? Is that you, Station Master? The noise, harsh and hostile, sent cold shivers down my spine. A stray dog, I assumed. Nothing more. The thought helped me find my courage once more. Surely the animal wouldn't manage to get inside. Yet I felt compelled to look for something with which I could defend myself. The waiting room was completely bare. Nervousness turned into a creeping sensation of fear. 
Finally, I remembered that I had packed up a bottle of brandy in my suitcase. It was a present for my father, and once broken, it would make a decent weapon. I began fumbling to open my suitcase, and outside, the dog began to wail and howl. I stumbled backward, gasping for air, heart pounding in my chest. It didn't sound like a stray dog. The creature was scratching the door with its claws, yelping and barking tirelessly, throwing all its weight against the wall with all its power. I couldn't see it, but my imagination ran wild. Go away! Leave me alone! I darted towards the exit and banged my fists on the wall. To my relief, the creature stopped pounding the door. I stood there, catching my breath and trying to regain some countenance. I peered through the cracked window, but couldn't see much outside. Driven by a creepy feeling, I crouched and stuck my ear to the door, listening intently. Once the thumping in my temples ceased, I could hear heavy breathing on the other side of the door. Not unlike the traveler's soft, raspy laugh. The man's face filled my mind. Unpleasant memories have a way of coming back to life at the most inopportune moments, and for a while, I fancied it was him outside, circling around the shelter, yelping and snarling like an animal, running on all fours, wild-eyed, and a demented grin on his face. Suitcase Part 1 featured Kristen Holland as Robert and the Station Master and Peter Coates as the announcer. Sound design by Jamie Stoffer from JLS Audio. The Midnight Carols was created by Vincent Robert Nicou. Thank you for listening and don't forget to tune in next week for Part 2.